Hello and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the lectionary for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Clay Riley, who is the rector of All Angels Episcopal Church in Spearfish, South Dakota. He enjoys recording music, gardening, reading history, and biographies. Clay is husband to wife Maggie and dad to his sons Liam and Finn. And Canon Myra Garns, who is the Officer for Youth Ministries serving on the presiding bishop's staff in the Department of Faith Formation. Canon Myra leads a ministry with young people grounded in principles of social justice and rooted in the gospel. She loves traveling with family and friends and cheering on the Ohio State Buckeyes. And last but not least, the Reverend Shug Goodlow, who is from the Diocese of Missouri and is the Assistant Rector at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Ellisville. She serves as the Missioner for Racial Reconciliation and Justice for the Diocese. Shug is married to wife Doris and they have two daughters, Monica and Simone, as well as a lovely granddaughter, Chloe. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being guests today, and let's go ahead and get started. First off, this year, Christmas falls on a Sunday, and so I'm just kind of curious, one, how are folks doing that? Are folks doing Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, or folks doing just Christmas Day? What's everybody doing? I'll be doing Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We have two services on Christmas, which kind of a midnight mass, but it's not a midnight a lot earlier. And um, we also have, you know, the Christmas pageant, which is much earlier. But the next day we will do a 9 a.m. no music Eucharist to make sure we do have something on Sunday. A lot of our parishioners can't drive at night either, and it will get dark here at 4.30 in the, mo- in the mm. afternoon. So we kind of need to do that as well. Yeah, right now we're just doing uh, Christmas Day, but we're looking at Christmas Eve. We have a pretty aging congregation, and they're pretty adamant about what times they feel safe driving. (laughs) We have the issue about night as well, so we want to be considerate of all of that and do something that works for the congregation. As the layperson, I'm really thrilled that I get to just decide where I um, slide (laughs) into my pews. (laughs) (laughs) on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So um, I haven't gotten that far about where I will be, but uh, looking forward to it. Nice. I know we're doing, I have served at two different churches that are about 30 minutes apart. So we're doing both Christmas Eve. And I was surprised me, nobody does midnight mass anymore. They'll call it midnight mass, but it's like at five or seven or sometimes it's like three and six. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Seven o'clock right here. Yep. So What is important to keep in mind this Christmas, this year, for folks? I think it's important to realize it is not just another Sunday. There's a habit surrounding coming to church on Sunday. I go to church on Sunday and I listen to the nice sermon, or we hope it's a nice sermon. (laughs) (laughs) We have coffee afterwards, and then, you know, we go home. And I would like to think that we... We'll have a different mindset about Christmas being on Sunday. That's not just another Sunday. As clergy, I think we need to be present in a different way than just the usual liturgy, say the sermon, give the blessing, and okay, now go home. I don't know if this is um, premature or not, but I think one of the things that is really important is our message on that evening because it's almost a uh, restart for a lot of folks. Church New Year begins on Advent 1, but this is kind of the culmination of all of that restart. And why I'm saying I don't want to be premature is that the readings from Luke are just gorgeous because Mm -hmm. they have those wonderful words, do not be afraid. And in our world right now, there is a lot to be afraid about. Um, You know, stratification, things like that. Mm. So I think that's one of the things that we need to really provide a safe space and um, make sure that folks know that, you know, fear is their construct. It's a thing that we impose on ourselves when Christ, you know, tells us we don't have to be afraid, or at least the angels do. You know, this is one of those, uh, we come, one of my special holidays that I come for, right? 
And so I always think, you know, and it's on Sunday and it can get convoluted, you know, as in that Easter Christmas of really welcoming or re-welcoming, re-inviting those who have been away for a while, perhaps. And all of the things that have happened since last Christmas Mm. and in our lives, you know, and so a lot of time is spent, you know, dressing up the church, preparing for the people. And I just think on that weekend where, you know, families and many folks who maybe don't get as much time off for Christmas, say I only get that day, well, maybe I get a little bit more because it's the weekend. And so my family might gather, mm-hmm. like paying attention to folks who, who don't have the luxury of that, you know, taking two weeks off between Christmas and New Year's are coming and they're coming likely seeking something. And are we preparing as much for them and their families as we are for the poinsettias and the trees and <laughs> the candles? So just holding that and thinking about what we might all be bringing on that Sunday. There are going to be people probably in church that day that haven't been physically present in some time Mm. for a number of reasons, COVID chiefly being the main culprit. And I know at our church, we're starting to see people come out for things. We had a trunk or treat Saturday night and the parish hall was full. And it filled my heart because I have, we haven't seen that in a long time. And I think that for all of us, we're going to have to be especially mindful this Christmas in particular, because again, there are a lot of people going to be reconnecting. There are people that are going to be coming for the first time. There are people who frankly are really, really tired and are looking for some sort of renewal on Christmas. And I said this earlier, I think the most important thing is to be present in ways that maybe we haven't been over the last two and a half years. Mm. And I think that the Christmas is a perfect opportunity for us to be able to do that. I also think it's a time when those of us that have been working in a particular way over the last two and a half years have some compassion and some self-care involved in this time that we don't wear ourselves out so that we are able to be present and we are able to share the message of the day. You know, I tell people all the time, the Bible is not a once upon a time book. It's a living document. And so I think it's contingent upon us to make what is whatever that gospel message is that day, and of course we know what it is for this day, but we make it relevant to what's going on in people's lives. Yeah, And it's not just a story from way, way, way back about this baby that was born out in a manger someplace. And, you know, how is that relevant to our lives today? How is that relevant to people who are having babies in situations other than in pristine hospitals? How mm. is that relevant for people that have babies and they don't really have any place to take them? You know, we have to make these things relevant to what's going on in our communities today. I was thinking this year about how it might be different, you know, with inflation and, you know, different people, job losses and things, how maybe Christmas is not like, how do we focus on not so much of the presence and things, and but instead on people's presence, like physically being together. I know we'll have results of elections that may have include referendums about women's autonomy over their bodies and things like that. And then I was thinking about like when, you know, at some of the churches that I'm at, we make things to give to people when they come, like if they're newcomers. And so do we have something like that to give to people? I think last year we gave away like Christmas cookies and little Ziploc bags after the service. Or sometimes I think one of the churches comes, their Santa dresses up and passes out like candy canes (laughs) or little bags of like peanuts and Mm -hmm. fruit and things. Along with that, what is the next thing that we're inviting people to? If, if we have people who aren't coming, like, do we have like a thing coming up? Like, oh, hey, you know, on blah, 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 we have this thing that we're inviting you to. And it doesn't have to be a church service necessarily, but maybe it's a, we're doing a canned food drive or whatever, just so that way you can get people in the door again to build that connection relationship with folks. The other thing that I thought about was like a blue Christmas. Uh, I don't know yes, if anybody's yes. doing that. I know we do one at Good Shepherd. The other churches I serve don't do it, but I think that might be important for folks who've lost people over the last years, what that might be like for them or folks who haven't felt connected um, to, to do that. 
Yeah, I think it's really important for us to remember that Christmas is not a joyful thing for everybody. It is a time of great pain and trauma for some people. It is a time of being alone for some people. It is a time of, I just want this day to be over for some people. So Mm. I think those are things we have to be mindful as well as the celebration. Yeah. And distress, right? There's all the stress of everybody getting ready. Yeah. The stress, right. Yeah, yeah. My friend was like, now I just buy my Christmas cookies. She's like, I used to make them all. And then my grandkids would come in and she described them as locusts coming in and just like <laughs> ravaging all her plates. And then like, all the plates are she's like, if that's how it's going to be, I'm just, I'm just buying my cookies. Just... <laughs> so let's talk about Luke. What do you think folks misunderstand about this story in Luke? Or what are things that people might not think about as we think about this passage? I just think it's kind of the reception of the story that people have, especially when they're coming, you know, for that feel good kind of Christmas, um, almost for some folks, family obligation. Mm. And it's a nice story, you know, and we see it in the pageants and we love seeing the kids with the towels on their heads and all this kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> and our gospel soup where the wise men and the shepherds stand right together. They really kind of miss the point of it's almost revolutionary that God shows up to shepherds who are the itinerant workers at this time. They didn't go home at mm. night. They didn't have paddocks. Mm-hmm. They were almost homeless. Mm-hmm. And to have the good news given to those folks, which is very Luke, you know, yeah. I think that is the really revolutionary thing about it. And I think it's not quaint at all. At that time, Shepherds, I don't really think, got a lot of proclamations made to them and people coming to find them to tell them important news. And then to have them to go after they got the news, that's really important. Because what are we going to do once we hear those words mm-hmm. of the inbreaking uh, of the sacred into the temporal? Adding on to what you just said, you know, for me, that's a biggie in terms of reaching out to the shepherds. I equate that with reaching out to the outsiders, maybe. Hmm. Not especially outcasts, but outsiders, people who are not in the inner circle or whatever. And I found that very profound. And I don't think that's too strong a word for my interpretation of it. And I do think that you're right. I do think some people miss that message, that image. I can actually visualize it when I read this. And I think that's what makes it so profound for me. That's not atypical of Jesus all throughout the Mm-mm. Bible. I mean, no. <laughs> Jesus wasn't hanging out in the Beverly Hills of the Bible. I mean, you know, it was. Well, I mean, we've already started. Jesus is barely there. He's barely and there. Yeah. He's barely there. And, and here yeah. we go. We're going to and the here marginalized. We go. And right and off the bat. Go. Yeah, right off the bat. Right. So it's uh, it's. We're seeing what's to come, really. You know, folks often get caught up in the, um, it's the angels and the shepherds and all the coming. Mm. You know, and at times if we begin to go a little deeper, but I think we're at Christmas, we're looking for the feel good. We're not wanting to hold Mm -hmm. on to the notion of this census that made folks go and be counted. Mm. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what ways we're being counted right now Mm. or tracked or noticed in whatever kind of way. And, you know, and just who's not being, who's consistently not being welcomed, Yeah. right? You know, how many places do I have to go to feel like I am safe and I am, uh, and I have a place, you know, listen to young people this weekend as we were preparing, beginning to prepare for the Episcopal Youth event, just talking about transphobia and where mm-hmm. is a place for me mm-hmm. as a young person who is not clear about my gender identity, trying to understand or maybe I'm clear and no one's ready to hear it, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no one's ready to understand that I present to them in this way. And that doesn't make sense for their mind or for what they know and understand. And so how many stops does it take before you can rest or be safe? Or in this case, you know, be born into new life, right? If we allow ourselves, we have much deeper messages that are coming, speaking through Luke. I think it's really interesting with this entirety of this story 
is that how it's been tamed. You know, it's been tamed and turned into something that, I mean, peanuts with, uh, you know, Charlie Brown and all that. You see that and mm -hmm. every sitcom, all this kind of stuff. And it's just, I mean, you can even do a drive through nativity these yes. days yes. to go yes. see this. And it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, our children love doing this and yeah. it's great, but could you imagine, and I can't imagine any of this for obvious reasons, but I couldn't imagine being Mary and going, um, this is about to happen. <laughs> and where are the machines that go bing? You know, where's all the attendance? Where's all that kind of right. thing? Right. Just the fear that would be there, the fear of Joseph. I mean, and all the stuff that went along with that, the baggage that went along with that. And then those poor shepherds who must have wondered what they were doing that evening, you know, to uh, make that manifestation happen. Was it a group hallucination or were we, uh, we were all seeing this? Hmm. <laughs> I think a lot about the incarnation and I've heard people preach on that, but thinking about like, Maya, with what you were talking about, about who's not being counted or who's not being seen and thinking about the incarnation as, mm -hmm. you know, how is Jesus coming like us or becoming like us? And, and so right. can we imagine, you know, if we're created in the image of God, that means God is, you know, cisgendered and transgendered and gay and straight and black right. and white and all of those things. And how are we imagining a God like that? And I think so many of our churches have I call it I don't call it that but somebody came up with that word so I use it but the righteousness where it's like you know we have uh -huh. the white Jesus uh -huh. and how do we help to help people think about an incarnate Jesus that looks like them that's like them and you know what that might be like well which leads me to the question sometimes going back to what Myra said and what you just said Shaniqua is who are our shepherds those of us mm. who don't fit into the righteousness mm -hmm. of the church. I mean, we worship at very white churches. <laughs> There's a parishioner that tells me almost every chance he gets that I'm the only black person that he knows. Mm. And this fellow is at least in his late sixties. And I say, how is that possible? Mm -hmm. I said, you don't work with, no, you don't, so, no, you don't live, no how I'm still trying to grasp that. <laughs> so that leads me to think then who are our shepherds for those of us that have either been marginalized or demonized or our black skin has been weaponized. Our black hair has been weaponized. It's not professional. It doesn't look good. It's your hair is too big. It's taken up the, you know, when the most natural aspects of your humanity are not acceptable, who is my shepherd? Who's coming after me if I'm that one lost sheep? Who's coming after me? Who's going to watch out for me? Hmm. And I have become more aware of this, of the ways that the church has traumatized people since I've been a priest. Mm -hmm. much more aware of it because people are more willing to have those conversations. So that's kind of what I'm left with with this. Who is my shepherd? Who is, who is your shepherd if you're not part of the status quo? Now, Shug, are you preaching or are we talking? <laughs> <about>? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I was thinking about shepherds in the sense too of like who gets these amazing special messages, but we don't see them or we don't listen. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I think sometimes I've heard profound messages from folks with mental health issues mm -hmm. who are homeless and they might say something and we might think they're crazy, mm -hmm. but what they have to say is pretty profound. Yes. How do you imagine the heavenly hosts? Like, what do you think that's like? I, I know it says, do not be afraid, which to me means they must be really scary if they had to tell people not to be afraid. <laughs> right. But what do you think that might be like? I think it's human nature to be afraid of what we don't know, what we can't mm. see. And so the thing may not even be scary. 
but mm. in our minds, because because we don't have total control of it, we don't really know what it looks like or what it feels like or what it smells like, then I don't know about this. I, I need to know. I, I need to lay eyes on this. I need to hear somebody say something to me. So I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with our human nature. Hmm. I had to ask myself and some other folks in Bible study yesterday, because we were talking about death. And I said, well, are we going to know that we're dead? You know, so what's to be afraid of? You know, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. even know if I'm going to know if I'm dead. There's some things that are just a mystery. And mm-hmm. I don't think that we're supposed to understand everything. I don't think we're supposed mm-hmm. to know everything. Some things are just a mystery. And I think that that is probably, for me, one of the things that is a mystery. And I'm more than happy to leave it that way. Well, I have this image and culture that I've grown up in and many that we know that are you know, so I've so I've uh, feminized these have the heavenly hosts, mm-hmm. right? And so, okay, I equate it to these societies that are matriarchal and powerful, mm-hmm. and women are holding so many things, mm-hmm. and usually bringing the good news or making good news out of mm-hmm. difficult situations, right? right? Um, out of challenges, out of the worst thing. That's the imagery that comes for me. And then I think about this time. So I have this image of brownness and something that reflects me. Okay. So now I'm seeing Viola Davis, Myra. Right. <laughs> this is woman king coming in. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm seeing Viola Davis. Yeah. That's my image. <laughs> like for me, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like fear, but maybe because that's the stories that my grandmothers and aunties and my mother gave me mm-hmm. as a little girl. And so I've held on to what that beautiful time would be. Yeah. And I think for me, part of the reason why I don't have the fear is because I truly believe the ancestors will be waiting for us and welcoming us. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing for me to fear. If the ancestors are waiting to embrace me, what should I fear? You know? I think one of the interesting things for me about the heavenly host is, and Shanika, you touched on it earlier, where I don't know what it's going to look like, you know, but what I do know is that I need to listen for it and I need to hear it. When I worked in um, DC, it was with a mainly homeless population and I would hear, oh, we need to give voice to the voiceless. And it was like, no, you need to learn how to listen because they have voices. Mm. And that's the whole thing. And like when we get that revelation from that heavenly host, are we listening? And sometimes listening and acting on that is probably really, really scary. And so Mm. keep our ears open and keep our eyes open and our hearts open and look for those transcendent moments where we're inspired to really uh, live into the incarnation. I think that listening is really important. Part of this whole theme that kind of comes through for me in these stories is like, why aren't we listening to women? You know, like here we have Mary and, you know, all of these things. And and you were talking about shepherds who are our shepherds and, you know, women are our shepherds. They tell us all these things and, and we listen maybe to our mothers, but we don't always listen to the other women that we see, you know, an Indian country will call like if there's a somebody who's older, we just call them grandma or auntie, regardless of mm-hmm, if we're actually mm-hmm. related or not. Right. Um, we don't always listen to all of the grandmas and aunties, or, you know, at least I think too, in our society, we're not listening to the women's voices and the wisdom that they have to impart. That was the way I was brought up down South. The women were the ones that kept you straight mm. and definitely gave you the wisdom. Then you better listen. <laughs> Where have y'all encountered the sacred or shepherds, or maybe where have you received a sign? I encounter, I think, the sacred most every time that I'm gathered with youth. Hmm. They have this beautiful way of welcoming one another and making space for all of their identities and ways that we, as adults, have gotten so hung up Mm -hmm. in sizing folks up and trying to assess who we are and what sort of baggage we're bringing and, you know, not allowing, not allowing ourselves to even connect to one another. 
in the conversation this weekend that they were sharing about what they have encountered in the last two, two and a half, three years, the struggle around mental health, anxiety, depression, and just feeling so disconnected, the fear of not being together, but then the anxiety of when I do have to come back together with people, you know, and we all are experiencing that, right? I think that we all are. And the sacred has just been in the opportunity to touch one another again, to Mm. hug someone, to sing together, to laugh, to laugh that belly laugh that Mm -hmm. when it's just out of control sometimes and you can't stop. But we haven't had that in so long. It was sacred to just hear that joy over and over again. And a few years ago, we might have said, oh, my Lord, can they stop? But it didn't even matter. Just keep going. Just do your thing. Welcome us all into that. And so the sacredness of just having space together and time together that I couldn't, I'll speak for myself, appreciate as much. Mm. And I think many are in that same space and that, you know, in that feeling, that same revelation and being reminded. When I've experienced the sacred, it's come in stories and it's um, in ways that I don't expect or, or I hope, but don't really expect, you know, I've got low expectations on them. Never forget back in Virginia and I was a associate at a um, parish that was right next to a public ivy and had all those sorts of people who were instructors at the at the university and all that kind of stuff there. And my rector was on sabbatical. And I got somebody came in and said, you know, we need to do this for a parishioner. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, they were going to bring in somebody to lead healing prayers from another parish and all this. And here I am. This was about 12 years ago. It recently ordained, oh, no, what are we going to do with this? And uh, horrified and scared and thought that it was going to go very, you know, charismatic instead of our very staid worship. <laughs> and 300 people, when we were doing these prayers, 300 people stood up and surrounded this woman and hands touched hands or touched backs. And the laying of hands was the entire congregation. And there wasn't a dry eye in the entire place. Mm. And that kind of opened up to me, that kind of heavenly host that was coming in and had no idea what was going to happen. And it was beautiful all the way from PhDs in physics to, you know, retired CIA members and all this kind of stuff, all bawling. And then we had an experience. We just had our bishop's visitation um, day before yesterday. Two of the kids that were confirmed have, have a, had a really rough time. And uh, we had two services at eight o'clock and, you know, the later one where the confirmations took place. I told the eight o'clock folks, I said, you know, we're going to have this service, but I'd love to not see you here. I'd love to see you there at uh, 10 o'clock to support these kids. And a few showed up for eight o'clock, but they stayed around for the 10 o'clock service to make sure they supported the kids. And I looked out again, there's not a dry eye in the place. And it's those kind of, you know, transcendent moments where our emotions and everything touch the sacred that are so gorgeous and wonderful. And I think since we're talking about preaching and prophetic voices, as much as we can talk about those transcendent moments, that where the fear goes away, all of that goes away, the divisions go away, and that we're just all made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And I know for some people that's really hard. Yes. That's what I guess we work for, all of us. Yeah, when I went to the congregation that I'm, I was called to this congregation, and I was had a little concern. I and I felt, well, you know, will they really see me? Will they really? In fact, I asked the bishop. I said, "Do they know about me?" You know, I mean, <laughs> 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 Shaniqua, you know what I mean. So, uh, <laughs> so he's like, "Yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine." So about three weeks ago. One of the women from, we have a quilting ministry at the church, came to me and said, Reverend Shug, I noticed you never wear a chasuble when you preside. And I said, yeah, the ones in the closet, they're too big for me. And I'm afraid I'm going to trip over it. And she said, oh, okay. Two days ago, I was presented with a chasuble that the women of the quilting ministry made. Mm. 
that is kente cloth. Oh my goodness. With nice. seven African symbols down the front. I got tears in my eyes now just thinking about it. And this let me know they really, you see me. The other thing I would like to mention is I have two parishioners that I visit, and I guess you would say nursing homes. One one is 97 and the other is 99. The 99-year-old is totally blind, and he's deaf in one ear, so I always have to stand to one side (laughs) to talk to him. When I go, I'll say, it's Reverend Suge, and he'll say, oh, hey, Reverend Suge. And now this man has never seen me. And so about a couple of months ago, he told me, he says, you know, I wish I knew what you look like. And I said, well, would you like for me to describe myself? And he said, no. He says, I think I would just rather go with what I think you look like. He says, it's, in, it's, based, it's based on your voice. So I said, okay. And the other person that I visit, she's 97. And some days I go and she says, who are you? And other days I go and she can tell you everything that happened from 1912, literally, until present day. Tell you what color apron her mother wore, what kind of cakes her mother made, where she went to school, where her parents, you know, where her father worked, right on up to when she got married, the whole nine yards. And as I went to leave the other day, she grabbed my hand. And she looked at me and she said, Reverend Suge, I love you. Mm. And that was the most, oh my God, sacred moment for me. She said, it means so much to me when you come to see me. And it just, to me, though, that was just such a sacred moment. Someday she doesn't even know who I am. And those moments of clarity or whatever, it's important to her that I'm there, that I'm present, so... Yeah, those kinds of experiences are, you can't learn about that. You can't make those things happen. Those are things that are God-given. Those are moments that are truly God-given. Right. Yeah. So let me shift over to John. I always struggle with John. John's not my favorite (laughs) gospel. (laughs) When I preach on him, I sometimes say, I think he like is like a poet that maybe went to the dispensary a bit. (laughs) (laughs) for this particular passage i struggle with like the the darkness and lightness metaphors sometimes Mm. because i think people take that and like literally darkness is in our skin tones and things literally yeah 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 how do you receive that darkness and lightness and how how might you preach on that one well, first of all, I'd say I can, um, yeah, I think the dispensary might have gotten in the way a little bit there. But John, I love John. And then sometimes I can't stand John. You know, some of the stuff, yeah. you know, the demonizing of the Jews, all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. that goes on in there. And I understand the historical ramifications of why that was during that time when they wrote it, um, when it was written for that community. But when I try to talk about the dark and the the lightness and the dark, I guess I look at either love or openness versus an absence or apathy. Hmm. You know, I think that's the way we talk about it because when we're enlightened, when I think about light, I think about enlightened. And when I think about darkness, I think about being alone or, or um, setting ourselves apart not trying to be a part of this incarnational thing, you know, denying the fact that we're made in the image of God. And with that comes some gratitude, hmm. wholeness versus absence or, you know, stratification. Yeah. yeah. I always have struggled as I think a young, from being a young person about mm-hmm. why does it feel like light and dark are so juxtaposed to whiteness and blackness, goodness mm-hmm. and bad. Mm-hmm. And and I think of it as, you know, we got work to do. And it's the light when I've done the work and I am clear about what it is, you know, how I'm analyzing, how I'm understanding, how I know the stories of other folks and not my, you know, my own truth is not the truth. It is, mm-hmm. it can be juxtaposed to others. It can be in concert with others, but it is staying safe in my own cocoon does not give me Mm -hmm. light. Mm. It does not help me understand. 
I think for me, when I read this question earlier to myself, I never thought about it like that. Mm. And that's because I'm probably trying really hard to come to grips with my own privilege that I've never had to go, oh, darkness and light, we're talking about this. You know, I can take, do a more poetic metaphor. And that's a challenge for me to remember that. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in the South where things were the rainbow people of God. And now I live in Spearfish, South Dakota, which is not very rainbow up here, you know? And so to be reminded of these things, that's actually a gift. The podcast today has been a gift because I can think about this in which I, it's not, it doesn't confront me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So and maybe that's something um, that we can talk about with this stuff yeah. is to people who don't have to think about this need to possibly be able to listen and be open to understand it a little bit better or at least try. At least try. Yeah. Have some compassion, not empathy, but some compassion. My focus has shifted to how easily the darkness can be overcome by very little light. As a kid growing up, all that imagery was around us all the time. And and Myra, I'm sure you can relate to this. I mean, you know, the good cowboys always wore white, the bad (laughs) cowboys wore black. There was a show that I used to look at, and I can't remember what the name of it was, but at some point they would have the kids come up and dance and they had different platforms. I think there was three or four platforms. I think it was three of them. And sometimes they would call a little black kid up, but that black kid never made it to that top platform. Hmm. Never got to that highest point. A lot of people would look at that and not and not see that, but as a, as a little black kid, mm-hmm. it was obvious to me. Hey, a black kid never mm-hmm. makes it up there to the top, you know. And so I've kind of moved to a place where, from a question of where is the light to, I can be the light. Mm-hmm. I can be the light. You can be the light. Together, we can be a big old light. We have a, a laundry love ministry where we go to a laundromat on the second Tuesday of the month. And when I tell you that I feel like a beacon for what we can do for folks who have to make choices between laundry and other aspects of Mm -hmm. their lives, medicine, food, shoes, clothing for their kids, whatever. To see the dignity that these folks feel from having clean clothes, Mm. I mean, something like that can be a tremendous light. The first month that we did it, this woman's son was so happy to have clean clothes, he went into the restroom at the laundromat and changed his clothes. Mm. He was so happy to have, that is a tremendous Mm. light. You know, it doesn't have to be huge, you know, earth shattering stuff. It's what I call tender mercies. Mm -hmm. You know, be compassionate. I think, Clay, you said something about compassion earlier. Mm -hmm. Be compassionate. Don't be judgmental. Mm Listen, be present. Being present is a huge to a lot of people, just being present. Mm-hmm. So, you know, instead of looking for the light, maybe we should look for ways to be the light. I think about darkness too. In our culture, the time when it's dark, like in the season of the winter, that's time, darkness is a time for rest mm-hmm. and it's a time for rejuvenation mm-hmm. and it's a time for storytelling. All of our important cultural stories mm-hmm. happen in the wintertime. Hmm. it's interesting because some people get depressed yeah some people i know get depressed at that time of year too Mm -hmm. and i think they call it seasonal disorder or something like that and so i know people that dread this time of year Mm -hmm. you know they just absolutely dread it and my wife is one of those people and i always look for ways to help her with that but I don't know, the darkness thing has always just had a negative connotation because it's been put out there so much. Mm -hmm. Kind of been hard to overcome. And my way of finally trying to overcome it was to, again, try to figure out ways to be the light rather than lament the absence of the light. Yeah, it's, it's a toughie. John says his own people did not accept him, but to all who received Mm. him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, but of the will of man, Uh, or not of the will Mm. of man, but of God. 
this I think is really significant, especially for people who feel like they're not accepted in their own communities mm-hmm. or who may not be accepted in their own communities. How do you connect with that in your own like social location or in your own experience? I'm struggling right now with people who refuse to respect other people's humanity and whatever their expression of humanity is. So you have teachers and pastors and other people who are refusing to use pronouns that people have chosen for themselves. You mm-hmm. have people telling black women that their hair is not professional. I think I mentioned that earlier. You need to do something about your hair. You know, if men have dreadlocks, so much of people's expressions of themselves has been politicized. Mm-hmm. You know, what has happened to the humanity? What has happened to this is how I see myself. This is how I'm comfortable living in the world. This is who I am. I don't want to be who you're trying to make me be. I'm struggling with us having to have such a thing as the crown act for me to be able to wear my hair naturally. Hmm. I mean, why does it have to be legislated? You know, so I'm struggling with all of these little things that are starting to happen, which are not really little things. They're big things that seem to be, I've lived long enough where I feel like we're going backwards in a, in a lot of these things. I've, I've seen all of this. I've lived through Jim Crow. I've lived through the civil rights era. I've lived through, you know, and, and I'm seeing this stuff again. And so I'm, frankly, I'm struggling with it right now. And because I'm struggling, sometimes I struggle with how to help other people with it. But I find that with conversations like we're having today, that it does help to hear what other people are doing and and how other people are approaching these issues. I feel like there's a lot with this that's, it's just stratifying, you know, it's like, are you in, are you out? What's so funny about John is, you know, separating away and becoming its own thing in scripture. So you've got a lot of these things are like, Hey, with us, you're against us kind of thing. Also the life was the light of all people. Mm-hmm. And it was everyone. Right. And I think in our context here in South Dakota, we've there's a divide that's happening, you know, and I can't even speak about on the reservations. But there's a divide that's happening everywhere right now. It's almost a tribalism about what your political views are, what these views are, and all this kind of stuff. And it's the light of all people instead of, Hey, we're all in this together. We can have different opinions. We can talk about these things. We can converse about these things, have compassion for each other and look at each other as we're in the image of made in the image of God. A lot of things are kind of heated up just because of political aspirations and it it really stratifies people. And this is when, you know, that's the kind of thing, that's the gut reaction I get from this kind of thing. Um, well, you know, you're either in or you're out. It's like, wait a second. I don't, I don't think that's what God had in mind, but you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but see, but therein lies the rub because that's our perspective. Mm-hmm. Our perspective is God. Everybody doesn't have that perspective. Right. And that's the deal. Yeah. Who gets to decide who's in and who's, who gets to decide that? Hmm. Now, why do you think that you're the one that's supposed to decide that? We always, we have a saving saying here at our church is judgment is way above our pay grade. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was just thinking, you know, internalized oppression keeps that system of white supremacy and uh, homophobia and classism going, right? When I drink that Kool-Aid and then I can't look in the mirror and see my own belovedness. Mm. And then I just keep giving back my people. Right the mess that's being fed to me, right? That I'm drinking, right? So I'm giving it back. I'm keeping it going. Absolutely. So so as much as, you know, the system counts on the oppressed to keep it going. And so when we don't resist that and don't see our significance, our belovedness, the grace that God has given us, that, you know, it just, it continues, right? And that's the work. For all of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the oppressed becomes the oppressor. And one of the things for me, as you were talking about that Kool-Aid, it tasted really good for a while. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm a male middle-aged wasp and it tasted really good for a long time. And then it's a hard 
till when somebody goes, no, this is actually really not good for you. And it's rotting anything, everything inside mm-hmm. of you. Mm-hmm. And then when you have that realization, there goes the fear that we're talking about in Luke. And then you have to be able to say, that's all right. Don't be afraid because the foundation of all existence is what John is talking about. And that's mm-hmm. what you're becoming a part of all mm-hmm. of creation, not the darkness of just having this big veil over yourself and thinking it's all about you, you know, mm-hmm. or your tribe or whatever. Right. And I love what you say. The oppressed become the oppressors and we can see that all over the world. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't have to preach on Christmas. I just did. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Let me move over to Isaiah. Here again, we have this lightness and darkness metaphor. And I really like, I think, Myra, it was you who talked about darkness as being a lack of community. One of the questions I had was like, who's been walking in darkness or how have we been walking in darkness? And if we think about that, how are we not in community with one another? Where... How can we build community? Maybe it's another way to ask this question. Well, we're starving for it. I mean, I think I'm going to go back to a recent experience with Imagine Worship in New York City at St. Bart's. Um, And you have young leaders coming together to figure out, um, you know, started in the Diocese of Atlanta and them trying to connect with folks around what are other ways that we can invite our people into worship and different styles, right? And so there, all the anxiety begins to build as you're going to offer something in a place that per, in most of our churches, right? Are we worshiping like this? No. But here we are at St. Bart's on high in, mm-hmm. you know, on Park <laughs> Avenue. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing it, right? We, we, mm-hmm. We're in the spot. And the anxiety becomes, is it going to work? Is it going to be okay? Who's going to say something? Are they going to show yeah. up? And then you know, the Holy Spirit comes and says, you know, I don't have time for you all and all this angst and Anjana you're bringing into this place. These young adults are here and have a story and testimonies to share, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just kept feeling in that experience, you know, here it is, Bishop Curry's coming, Bishop Rob Wright is coming, and they get COVID. And praise God, they're okay. But it's those moments where you have to pivot, right? You got to pivot and Mm -hmm. suddenly... Here it is. What was allowed for were the stories that were supposed to be heard anyway, from the voices and the mouths of 20 and 30 year olds who are telling, you know, their story of being disconnected for so long and what it did to them and how maybe they struggled with taking their life at some point. But God said, no, the plan was not for them to be gone. And then the way that testimonies and stories are coming into my purview, like over and over again in the Episcopal Church that we just don't do. Mm-hmm. And it's this nudge that I keep getting that says, call for those, call for mm. those stories. You know, don't yep. be afraid. Don't be afraid for what God is giving us, is telling us, is showing us. Fast forward a week, I'm at Camp McDowell with adults closing a residency for Baptized for Life. Now you look around that room, no one's going to tell a story. No one's going to give a testimony of what God has <laughs> done in their life. You know, you might get young people to do that. You're not going to get Episcopalians in their uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s to do that. But I tell you what happened. If given the opportunity and the invitation, the spirit will move Mm -hmm. where she's supposed to go. And so, I mean, folks are in tears. It's just like what we've described. The tears are flowing. The stories of how we have survived and overcome and are still working to feel what we've felt since this pandemic started. I just am reminded, take the risk, Myra. Take the risk, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid, you know. The rubrics are there, they will be there. <laughs> they will be observed in a certain way. <laughs> So Isaiah talks about a yoke, the yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders. What bar do you think we have across our shoulders, maybe either individually or maybe even as a church? Or what rod of the oppressor do you wish God would break for you? Or do we wish God would break for us? 
Well, I often say I don't I don't know what God was thinking. I mean, I'm black, I'm gay, I'm a woman, I'm, you know, uh God gave me a a pretty good load to carry there, but I've managed to do it. I've lived most of my life somewhere between hell and hallelujah and continue to do so, but having done so has given me tremendous insight into other people's struggles and stories. I'm a big proponent of storytelling, Myra, and listening to other people's stories, even to the point that when I do the children's message on Sunday morning, I come down, I sit on the steps, I have the children gather around me, I explain the gospel in a way that I think they can understand, and then I ask them their stories as it relates to what they just heard. Hmm. And I'm amazed at what those little kids say. You know, the one little kid that reached out and hugged me, you know, just because of what she was able to sit there and share or whatever, and she just was so happy. She just wanted to hug. I think each one of us in those quiet moments of the late night or the early morning, and maybe we're awake, we can, you know, God comes to us. There's times when I ask God, what do you want me to do? And frankly, God says, I don't care. <laughs> you know, but then there's other times when it's like, you figure it out. And then there's other times when it's pretty clear to me. Um, and so I think we just have to leave ourselves open to the Holy Spirit and not have a box of what that's supposed to look like, the way the Holy Spirit is supposed to come to us. One of the things that I always say, you know, we as Episcopalians always say, you know, we have these signs that say welcome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have them out on the street and we tell people, oh, you're welcome. Come. Well, I think there's a difference between welcoming people and inviting people. Mm-hmm. Welcoming implies that you found your way to me and, you know, you do the work and then you come and then I'll give you a cup of coffee, whatever, welcome. But inviting you and being intentional about reaching out to you, meeting you wherever you are, and inviting you into community. Most of my life is lived in community. I'm one of nine children. So there I started out with community. I'm very involved in community theater. I do a lot of board work, which, you know, involves different communities. And then, of course, the church. I mean... It took me a while to figure out that my life is really centered in community stuff and being part of community. Yeah, I just think we have to be intentional about meeting people where they are and then letting people tell their stories in a way that's meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we learn something, we gain something. But again, it comes back to what I always say. It's about being present in an authentic way. And we let people be authentic in our midst. You know, we want you to be authentic. We want you to be who you are. I think one of the yokes that I have and that I think a lot of folks have is it's the yoke of judgment. Mm-hmm. As in, and let me unpack this for a second. You know, I was talking about how stratified our culture can be right now. You've got your conservative, you've got liberal, you've got these folks who are following this avatar or that avatar. When you hear enough it feels like for me that you start to gravitate towards a side, you know, Mm. and then there's an inherent judgment that comes with that because you look at the other folks and go, wow, that's mean spirited. That totally so that's blah, 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 all this stuff. Right. And so how do we, that yoke of going, okay, I might not agree. And I don't think it's, you know, part of the gospel, but let's talk about it. Hmm. You know, and I might not agree. I don't know if that's a part of the gospel, but let's talk hmm. about it. Let's talk about it. Hmm. Yeah. And that kind of reconciliation that can happen from stories, like you said, you know, mm-hmm. from stories and trying to find out where people are coming from. You know, that's the only, through stories is the only way we're all going to get closer in that community, that uh, body of Christ will be made whole. And then we can start using our hands and our hearts as the body of Christ. But until we get whole, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> Amen. You just said a word, Clay, that made me think about something. And, you know, you, sometimes people say something and the light bulb goes on. You're talking about reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And then the work that I do and others mm-hmm. do in terms of reconciliation, it was a harsh reality. We talk about reconciliation, but there cannot be reconciliation where there was not a relationship in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
that's kind of a yoke for me right now is really <clears throat> facing that reality that there really wasn't a relationship here in the first place. And I'm kind of working the wrong way here. I'm trying to reestablish a relationship that never existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's impossible to do. So having to be honest about that, that yoke, I think, is going to be lightened or removed by some serious truth-telling on both sides, on all sides. And if anything in my ministry and my missional work, I think that's a big yoke for me right now. Going back to Luke and going back to fear, fear of the mm-hmm. truth, because it really messes with yeah. our ontological identity of, oh, I'm yes. so-and-so. That never could have happened. No, no, no. It was... It looked like gone with the wind. It looked like this. It was just wonderful, you know? <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> you know? Or the recent thing that I read that, you know, the slaves, they were happy. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> when you're from where I'm from, that's a part of the indoctrinated dialogue. It really is. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm learning that, yeah. And that's why I'm talking about fear of the truth. I mean, yes, we have yes. fear of the truth because we don't want to learn who we all really are, you know, and look at that privilege and look at this and look at that. Well, we name things that separates us. Mm-hmm. Critical race theory. What is, what is that? You know, what is that? It's called honesty. I call it honesty. But... <laughs> yeah, it's called honesty. Right. It's called honesty. Right. But we're going to name it something else that we can use as buzzwords. Mm-hmm and to further alienate people and instill fear. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it. Some people do want to instill fear. And that has just happened in my state, in Shaniqua State, and don't get me started. I know. And see, Shaniqua, we haven't even cussed yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm holding back right now, believe me. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about the yokes of our church that hold our church back mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. things that I think about that I wish, well, one of them is like the yoke of our entanglement maybe with empire. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Our entanglement with the institutional church, right? Like we so often think the church is the building and we don't think of it mm-hmm. as the people or how are we going out and doing the work of the people. The other yoke that I think our churches have is like, We've always done it this way. <laughs> I wish we could. I wish we could get right. rid of that yoke because I feel like right. every vestry or every bishop's committee, they're like, we've always done it this way. Well, and what I call that yoke is, and that's part of it in terms of the institutional church, is the tyranny of theology. Mm. Mm. There is uh, this business of it has to be done, and if you miss one word, if you say you instead of, you know, I, or, you know, then the whole thing is invalid. Oh, it was terrible. It was, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> this reinforcing of structures in many ways are harmful and separate us from one another is, is just, I think that's a big old yoke. Mm-hmm. I think with COVID, um, when we've come back from COVID pretty well, pretty healthy, actually, thanks be to God. One of the things that we're trying to realize is that, that we can have both end situations. It's not just about mm-hmm. the building. Because mm-hmm. we're on the National Registry of Historic Places, all that, all that fun stuff that comes along with that. But we can have that, but we can also use that to reach out into the community and do things for the community. Mm-hmm. 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 We've got a new program here at our church. I won't get into it, but it's the first time we've actually been outward looking for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that we can think about doing as we move forward. Mm. That kind of opening up ourselves, yeah. taking away the darkness and don't be afraid to try right. new stuff. Don't be afraid to go like, I don't care. That's the way we always done it because guess what? It ain't working anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and think about how long we've done that to ourselves. Think about how long our churches were only for like Sunday morning and maybe Wednesday evening Bible mm-hmm. study. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and other than that, they didn't really see any, any life, any activity and let people in, let the talk about community, let the community and do some things here that are community based that make people feel, Oh, well, I still have a place there, even if I don't go there mm-hmm. on Sunday morning, that it's still a place for them to come to. We've done it to ourselves. Church is not a spectator sport. I'm 
still so interested in this yoke that gets talked about in ways, but not, but this notion of the gentrification in the communities where mm -hmm. our churches are, mm -hmm. the fact that many of us no longer live in the communities mm -hmm. and only commune in on certain mm -hmm. days. It's not of the community. It's not of, you know, it's not shifting or assessing needs of the people. And so, you know, just getting real and honest about that and the work that folks will put into maintaining a building that they may need to let go or have serviced in a different way. Mm -hmm that there is no time to do the work that Jesus is calling us to do, to be the hands and feet, because we are patching together a building that's falling apart, what have you, and not really even being in the community and understanding the needs of it. So hmm. really trying to figure out and answer that call again is my prayer for where we're, where we're leading in the next phase of our ministries and what church is. And so being open to that, I just keep praying that we're going to wake up from that you know, and use the resource that that building has mm -hmm. for, you know, what is monetarily needed hmm. in the community mm -hmm. and sometimes right in the congregation. Right. True. It's so interesting you say that about buildings and everything. And, you know, we've got this precious building, mm -hmm. but the doors are open 24-7 for prayer. Mm -hmm. And people come in all the time and mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. just depends on how you use it. We've got a tutoring mm -hmm. program, like I said. We couldn't do that mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. facilities, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, how do you use it? How do you use the gifts given yeah. to you? That's kind of the thing. So what tips do you have for preaching Christmas, either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or both? Five minutes or less. No, just... <laughs> I think, I think the thing is, it's, I, I always focus on do not be afraid. Mm. Always focus on mm -hmm. that because there are people out there that are scared. Mm. And if they really search, there's a lot to be afraid of, but really is there. And you can point that out. Yeah, everything's going to be all right. Yeah, I would agree with that, Clay. And I, and I say, you know, I preach the good news. Mm -hmm. There's good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, share that. And some people are going to be there that are only there, you know, two or three times a year. So mm -hmm. it's important. The <laughs> message that they hear is important. You know, one piece that I like in John is uh, all things came into being through him and without mm -hmm. him, not mm -hmm. one thing came yeah. into mm -hmm. being. And remembering where we began, yes. where mm. this is, yes. where this returns, where it's centered. It may be leaving to go, you know, I will put on our pretty jammies and take pictures to post on social mm -hmm. media oh. and open up that first round of presents and that meal. But all of that, all of what we have or don't have came into being and it's centered right here. So I just think remembering to bring us back. And the way that it came into being. It wasn't with big fanfare. It wasn't with in a palatial estate. It wasn't in gowns of gold or whatever. This was a humble, humble, humble beginning. Mm -hmm. And yet, the light of the world. Right. Yeah. The most prophetic voice. The mo yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I got that from my friend Shaniqua. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was thinking about what you said about stories and children. So like, this is a great story and how story can connect us on here. We're telling a story and that could be like a theme maybe folks could use throughout whatever mm. the story might be. And then we link it to mm -hmm. something, you know, whether it's Isaiah or one of the gospels. And the other thing I was thinking about was children and how Jesus was a child who almost was killed, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about what you said about the wisdom of, I think, Mara, you said about wisdom of children. And in Lakota language, our, our word for child literally means sacred one. And mm. so, yeah, and I was thinking about that. And how often do we or don't we listen to children? And how often can they see things that we can't see or see things in a different way that we can't see? Because we're, you know, we've sort of been all boxed in. Yes, yes, yes. That might be an interesting take on things. Well, thank you so much for being willing to spend time with me today and share your wisdom and stories and all of this. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having us. It was a privilege. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Clay, Myra, and Shug. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you were lifted up by today's conversation, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. That's all for this season of Prophetic Voices, but join us in 2023 for our Lent and Holy Week season. Until that time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.